Is depression funny? If you know how to wield it. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. Say, before we dive in, a big reminder to swing by our Facebook page. Great discussions, interesting articles, and your chance to be on the show. A few months ago, I was giving a speech about depression and mental health sliding a few jokes in there. We get to the Q&A. A guy raises his hand and he says he likes the show and he's an army veteran. He was in combat. And that experience has been a big part of the stress and anxiety and depression he deals with. He wants to know if we'll ever have a comedian on the show who was a combat veteran to talk about depression. I confess that I hadn't thought of that because I didn't think people like that would be comedians because I was unfairly stereotyping them as being completely serious people. Turns out, when you go looking for American military veteran comedians online, you find tons. It's a whole genre. And one of the names you see over and over again led me to Los Angeles. My name is Tom Tran. I am a uh, combat wounded veteran of the United States Army. I'm a professional stand-up comedian. Tom is also a working musician in a band. I talked to him in a converted garage behind his house full of guitars. By day, he works full-time as a traffic reporter on the radio. Five Traffic and weather together every 10 minutes on the fives. Good morning, Tom Tran. Good morning. We've got a problem over on the westbound side of the Ventura Freeway, the 101 right before the 405. A crash being reported here blocking the right lane. Had another accident being reported a little closer to Woodman Avenue. That's but comedy, that's the main thing. My first mission outside the wire, I was in a gunfight, and I took a 7.62 round from an AK-47 to the back of the skull. Honest God's truth, that's why I retired. Um, it screwed up my short-term memory, and I can't remember a lot of things, which is why you might see me looking at my hand occasionally. Um, and people are like, that's terrible that you don't have a good memory. And it's not, because I live uh, with a woman, and it could be the best fucking thing that's ever happened in my life. Because <laughs> I have a built-in excuse to forget everything. She can't get mad at me, because that would be unpatriotic. <laughs> I was on tour one time, I called. I was like, hey, I made it safely. She's like, why didn't you fill the ice cube tray? I'm like, because I forgot. She's like, why? Because I got shot in the goddamn head. <laughs> Fighting for your freedom, so. Which one do you want, ice or freedom? You, know you, want. you can't have both, that is selfish. Tom's in LA now, but that's not where he started out. Originally from Vietnam. And were you born there? I was born there, yeah. I was. Um, I was born in February 1979. Uh, my father, who was an Air Force pilot, South Vietnamese Air Force pilot, he, he trained with the U.S. Air Force, um, went back to Vietnam, flew C-141s, I think, during the Vietnam War. But when Saigon fell, he couldn't leave because I had an older brother and an older sister, <clears throat> and my mother, obviously. Uh, so he was put in a prisoner of war camp for three years, and then he escaped in 1978, uh, if I've done the math correctly, I was conceived very shortly thereafter. Uh, and then about a year later, m my parents escaped from Vietnam, uh, went from Vietnam to Buffalo, New York, because uh, there was sponsorship there. Well, they love chicken wings and 
football teams that lose Super Bowls four years in a row, and they saw that coming in the future. No, there was <laughs> there was a sponsorship. There is a, a, a Catholic parish, uh, St. Aloysius Gonzaga. My older brother, my older sister, myself, and my mom uh, was pregnant with my younger sister, and we had our cousin with us. So they brought us to the United States, and we settled in Buffalo. Was there comedy in the household growing up? God, no. Because it was a whole different world. It was, I mean, I was one when we came to the United States, and it was first generation. My parents barely spoke English. They were just trying to get through the days. They were just trying to make a life and, and uh, provide for their family in this place that wasn't their home country. So there wasn't a lot of humor. I, I don't really remember at all laughing as a kid. It was me trying to figure out my place in my family, this country, and, and who I was, because I was born in Vietnam, but I was being raised in Buffalo, New York, around absolutely zero other Vietnamese people other than my family. And, uh, I, you know, it, it didn't hit me until I was like in my early 20s, after I'm, I've become a combat soldier, how much exactly my parents had given up for, for us to have this life. But there was not a lot of comedy. Tom Tran didn't look like most of the other kids growing up. His family spoke a different language. They ate different foods. He's not sure if he was clinically depressed during this time, but he did feel lost. Says he got kicked out of a Catholic high school for fighting, switched to public school, and then afterwards joined the army. It was the first adult decision I ever made. Um, like I realized at some point that my father, who was a prisoner of war, and my uncle who had been killed in the war, and my grandfather who had been killed before that, they gave up their lives. My father cannot ever go back to Vietnam. My parents worked so hard to give us a good life in this country that I adopted and that adopted me. The least I could do was give up eight years of my life, sign a contract, serve this country. Where did you go first with the Army? Uh, I mean, I went to basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Uh, then I went to advanced training at uh, Fort Gordon? Yeah, Fort Gordon, Georgia. I don't know why I forgot that. Um, but I, yeah, the Army was another transition in my life where I didn't have anybody. I, there was one Asian dude in my basic training unit who, after basic training, I never saw that dude again. Um, and I remember, you know, there were cliques. You know, the Latino soldiers hung out with the Latino soldiers. The black soldiers hung out with the black soldiers. The white soldiers hung out with them. And I was, it was another thing where, like, I was alone and I had to figure out how I was going to deal with being in this world when I don't have anybody that I'm linking up with. Yeah, there were, there were other soldiers. They were in my unit. They were on my, on my team, but they weren't... I can't tell you that I have any friends from my early military career where, you know, in training and then in our first unit, I was like, that's a dude that I remember dearly. I, there's one guy, Mike Puglisi, but because we used to drink all the time and come back to base effed up and... <laughs> That's it. But other than that, you know, I had to, again, very much deal with how am I going to live in this world and rely on myself, but still do my job as a member of the society. Life in the Army improved for Tom after basic training. Sergeants weren't yelling at him anymore, and he got to pursue his interests. 
he started taking college classes and finding a path. Yeah, when I found when I found my niche and I found out what I was good at and I found a, a you know, I found out that my unit relied on me and my skills and my um my nerdiness came in hand because of my job. I was a as a radio guy in the army, a communication sergeant. The reality is I wanted to be Adrian Kronhauer from Good Morning Vietnam. 1987 movie with Robin Williams as a charismatic Vietnam War DJ, famous for saying, Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Da Nang. Oh, Viva uh, And my recruiter is like, that job's not available right now. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just sign up for that one. Yeah. Well, it's it was a matter of like, there are only so many slots available in the army and they, they just weren't available. So I remember my recruiter said, I have a radio job for you. It's in a special operations unit. And in my head, I'm like, cool, I'm going to be a DJ in a special operations unit. Not what that meant. That was not totally, like he phrased it just just to get my interest peaked. <laughs> just um, on the right side of truth, right. but not any further. I tell people all the time, my recruiter never lied to me. He always told me exactly <laughs> the truth to a point. Right. It was legitimately a radio job. Those radios just happen to be strapped to your back with a giant whip antenna as you're jumping out of an airplane. Uh, he never said I was going to be playing ACDC on it, but it was a radio job. It was technically a radio job. But it turns out I was really good at that because I was a radio guy. I, 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 mean, I was, went to college for engineering and radio broadcasting, and I work in radio now, and I, I'm my own sound guy at gigs. and So I was really good at it. And I've never regretted the Army, not even when I got shot, not, not when my roommate got killed, Not after every failed relationship, <laughs> um, I never regretted joining the army. It was th single-handedly the best thing that I ever did in my life because I can trace back every little bit of success and failure that I've had in the last 20 years to joining the army. When did you first go into combat? Iraq. What year? 2003. Right at the beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tom had already been in the military for several years by this point, promoted to sergeant. His unit was sent to the Middle East to get ready for the second Iraq war. Well, the first three months were really super boring because we got to Kuwait in January. The war didn't start until mid-March. So there's a lot of farting around tents and chasing girls and messing with the Air Force girls. Um we crossed the border about a week after the rest of our unit did. And our, we were part of a, a civil affairs group. And part of that job is to attach to other conventional and unconventional units to augment them. And my team was one of the last groups that, that left, left Kuwait, went up to Iraq. Um, so the war was going on for about a week before we crossed the border, maybe a little less. And we get up to Anasaria, which is this city kind of southeastish Iraq. I was, I was, I sat down. I was just starting to eat lunch. 
I was digging a foxhole, foxhole, if you can call it that. We were just digging in the sand and setting up fighting positions and a perimeter around our the warehouse we were staying in. <clears throat> and my colonel comes out and goes, hey, the guys from fifth group are here. Do you want to go out and play? I'm like, hell yeah, I'll go out and play with the guys from fifth group. It's day four in Iraq. I'll go kick around with the Green Beret buddies. What does go out and play mean? Go out on a mission as our way of diffusing the fact that we're in a war zone. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's part of that dark sense of humor that comics or veterans and comics have. You know, we, I don't think we ever said, hey, we're going to go out this, you know, stomp heads and kill people. So I was like, let's go out and play. We get in the truck. They take us out on a recon. And I had my video camera with me because I was the communications sergeant. So part of my job was to collect as much intelligence as I could on wherever we were operating and make sure that we could operate, you know, we drive into the city and the camera's rolling and we drive down this street and to the left of us is the river. It's either the Tigris or Euphrates, one of the two. And uh, my interpreter starts saying, hey, we're in a really bad place. And we're like, why? Because this is the headquarter of the Bath, who were the ruling party, the minority ruling party of Iraq. Because this is the headquarters of the Bath. And no sooner does he say that, that on the camera you hear pop, 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 gunfire. Unbeknownst to us, what is going on is not far away from where we're going, a Marine unit is already engaged in a firefight. For some unknown reason, they decide not to transmit this information over the radio. I know because I'm the radio guy and I would have heard it. So we were on this recon with a special forces team from 5th Special Forces Group and one of the SF mission is called Foreign Internal Defense, which means they train the indigenous population of a country to fight their own wars. It's why there's only 12 guys on a special forces team. They're not going to fight the war. They're going to train the militia or whoever it is of that country to do the fighting for them. They're there to supplement and augment those units. So as we're driving, there is a, a white Toyota pickup truck with a bunch of our Iraqis in them with Shemogs and AK-47s because that's what they wear. An SF gun truck, my truck, another truck for my unit, another SF gun truck. SF is special Special forces, forces sorry. So there are a bunch of trucks and, and so we're being led by an Iraqi gun truck and we're being tailed by an Iraqi gun truck. But they are ours. They're being trained by the special forces. Well, because the Marines decided not to tell anybody this, as our Iraqis pull down the corner, all the Marines see is a truck full of Iraqis with AK-47s flanking them. So the Marines who are already engaged in a firefight start shooting at our guys. Our guys don't know what happened or what's going on. So they start shooting back. The, Mar the guys that the Marines are shooting at in the first place know that they're not friendlies. So they start shooting and it is just mayhem. We don't know this is happening. This is all stuff I've heard and read out of reports afterwards. But that's when you hear the eruption of bullets. Because it's a three-way fight. It's, yeah, it's a three-way fight. And then you just have this, this convoy of uh, special operations soldiers making this turn. And it's 
It's classic do not do infantry 101 that when you're in a gunfight and you're in a convoy, you don't stop. You just go. What did we do? We friggin' stopped. And we stopped because one of the SF, the well, the SF captain realized what's going on, throws some smoke out, and he's calling cease fire. You hear it on the video of me getting shot. You hear cease fire, cease fire. Because he sees the overall battlefield at this point. He know he understands what's going on. We're stopped. And from across the river, again, this is from a report, across the river, someone takes a pot shot. Uh, I, would, I would like to think it was a sniper, but then he must be the worst sniper ever because I was stopped and he didn't blow my head off. I go to reach for my colonel's pistol because my colonel has my rifle. Because why not? Why give the sergeant a rifle? I was driving, that's why. So I reach for the colonel's pistol, and as I reach for it, a round hits the back of my head and pushes my head forward into the tactical radio. I don't know I've been shot. All I know is something hit the back of my head. I very clearly remember thinking, somebody hit a building, something ricocheted, piece of shrapnel, something hit me in the back of the head. You heard Tom talk about the tape of this happening. We're going to play some of that tape. And given that it's a war zone, you will hear gunshots. Yeah, oh, Trans head. I'm bleeding. Where? Where you hit? Head. Head? Yeah. Uh, it looks, looks pretty small. Tom uses that clip in his comedy act today, which is rare in stand-up, playing video of yourself after you've been shot in the head. All right, back to the battlefield. After he got shot, his training kicked in combat lifesaver trained so i know that uh i gotta keep talking keep myself awake and then a couple moments later i feel this warm wet feeling on the back of my neck and i reach up and i i touch it and i look at my hand and it's blood and that's when i realized that i was wounded i still didn't know it was a bullet because uh even on the video you'll hear me say well that'll teach me not to wear my helmet because i was wearing I was wearing my boonie cap at the time. So <laughs> I put my helmet on because I'm like, well, this would be a good time to put this on after I've been shot. I didn't know it was shot, but uh, I put it on. Still don't know what happened. I'm just concentrating on the blood coming out of my neck. And again, I'm combat lifesaver trained, so I take the Kevlar off. I grab a bandage out of my, my, my vest and start bandaging up my head. Put it back. I put the helmet back on, grab my colonel's pistol put around in the chamber, and we take a defensive position. Tom's unit ended up having to immediately go on another mission nearby before they could get back to base. And Tom says for that one, he was given the job of staying back and guarding the truck, since no one was really sure how long he was going to stay conscious or, you know, alive. Finally, they get back. Tom gets bandaged and insists on going back to work the next day. He wants to stay busy. This is at the very beginning of a year-long deployment. The rest of the year goes by, and somehow, to that point, no one in Tom's unit had been killed. It wasn't until my roommate was killed that, you know, that's when things got bad for me. Was he a friend? Close friend? He was not a close friend. He became a good friend because he's a good soldier. And I appreciated good soldiers. What does that mean? 
he had gotten into some trouble. <clears throat> Allegedly, there was an incident with a CIA truck and maybe some Iraqi booze. I don't know the specifics, and this is all alleged. But there was an incident. <laughs> and he got in some trouble. But instead of, instead of, you know, saying, well, screw you guys, he's, he rangered up. He was like, well, I'm just going to do better. I'm just going to be a better soldier now. And he was. He, he was a cook. He didn't have to be. We, we used to play Madden football together on my Xbox. I was the only guy that beat me while I was sober. What happened to him? <clears throat> he woke up one morning, December 19th, 2003. What was his name, by the way? Specialist Charles Edward Bush. He was actually an augmentee to my unit. He came from another unit. The power had been out in the province for a few days. And, uh, I kind of shut down by December. Uh, it'd been 11, 12 months, boots on the ground. I'd been shot. I was running missions all the time. We were short timers. I was done. I was just done. Uh, and as a, as a non-commissioned officer, that's the wrong answer. I should have, I should have been balls to the wall, hard charging to the moment everybody was back in the States. But I, there were a bunch of things that happened and I was not happy with our leadership. I was not happy with the chain of command. I was not happy with the, the commander in chief. And in hindsight, I would like to apologize to president Bush for all the things that I said to him in the past. You're fine, man, sir. All things considered. So I was done. <clears throat> Power's out for a couple days. Comes on. And he says, Hey, Sergeant, uh, the power's back on. It's going to be a good day. And uh, he went out on a mission. And I was a combo guy. I was just a communication sergeant, so I had, I had to go listen to radio traffic. <clears throat> I go and check the radio, check. I get a cup of coffee. And over... The tactical radio, we hear a unit's been attacked, improvising its explosive device. It's our, it's our unit. Chuck was on the 50, providing uh, support. What is the 50? It's a machine gun. Okay. IED explodes, truck rolls over. Two other soldiers injured one critically and Chuck is killed. It's December 19th, 2003. It's right before Christmas, but more importantly, like three weeks before we are set to go home. So we've been in country 11 and a half months. The only major sustained injury was my gunshot to the head week one. And we made it 11 and a half months. And, uh, he was killed in action. And at, 
and I did this thing. <clears throat> I did this thing where I deal with tragedy by compartmentalizing my feelings and I throw myself into work. It's a thing that I do to this day. You're avoiding it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the easiest way to put it. But I, I, I say, hey, you can grieve later because that's what they teach us. The mission's got to go on. You can grieve later. But I don't ever let there be a later. I just keep going. I just keep pushing and I keep working and I keep focusing on everything except the tragedy that I got to deal with. It has gotten better in recent years. It has, has gotten to the point where I can recognize that there is something that I got to deal with. I don't necessarily do anything about it, but I'm at the point where I, I do see, okay, you got you to gotta deal with this. Whereas before, nope, you just drive on till the mission gets done, till whatever it is in your life has got to be completed. That's what you focus on. Three weeks later, we were scheduled to redeploy. You know, we were already on the books to leave. We were packing up our gear. He didn't have to be on that mission. We were done. We were turning the AO, the area of operations, over to the unit that was taking over for us. He didn't have to be out there. I shut down. I, I said to myself, I'm done. This unit's taken over. I've done my time. I've shed my blood. I'm done. I hate my chain of command. I hate my president. I hate everything about this because I've been on the ground for 12 months and I was over it. He volunteered to go on a mission he didn't have to go on and he was killed because of it. He was a better soldier than I was at that point and I was his sergeant. I outranked him. I was supposed to be the leader. You have survivor's guilt. Damn right I do. Every day of my life. More from Tom Tran in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, a way of maybe demystifying depression a bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, of course, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. Stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. I got a purple heart for it. You guys, don't, don't cheer for that. It's the worst fucking ribbon you could get. That just means the other guy almost killed you. That's all that means. But the thing about the purple heart is, in the state of New York and in the state of California, when you have a purple heart, they give you a free license plate. Did you know that? That's one of the few advantages to being shot in the head in combat. 
Let me tell you a funny story about the first time I, I got my license plates. I was in New York, my hometown, Buffalo, New York, and I got my Purple Heart license plates. And this was 2004, right after I got back from Iraq. And I get my plates and I call my buddy Matt down at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I said, hey Matt, I got my Purple Heart plates. And Matt has three Purple Hearts. So he's been shot three times. And this was like 2004, right after the first year of the war, a lot of support for the military. Matt goes, put them on your car, and see if you can get a ticket. That doesn't seem like a good idea. So he goes, no, no, see if you can get a ticket. So I put my plates on my car, and I drive it to Buffalo Police Headquarters, and I park in a handicapped spot in front of Buffalo Police Headquarters, and then I walk to a bar and get shit-faced drunk at 11.30 in the morning. And then I walk back to my car and I gotta take a piss. So I start peeing next to my car. And this cop comes out, I was like, is this your car? I'm like, yes sir it is. He goes, where are you going? I'm like, to a bar? He goes, I didn't ask you where you're coming from. It's not the answer I gave you. <laughs> he goes, is this your car? I'm like, yes sir. Just come back from Iraq? I'm like, yes sir. He goes, you wait right here. So he gets his partner, his partner comes out and they put me in a squad car. The partner gets in my truck and they drive my truck to my house and then walk me into a bar. <laughs> and they buy me lunch and a beer at 11.30 in the morning. And the cop goes, airborne sergeant, and fucking leaves. So I call Matt, I'm like, yo, you are not gonna believe what the fuck just happened. So I tell him, and he goes, I meant roll through a stop sign, you idiot, and I'm gonna fucking DUI. <laughs> Back with Tom Tran, when last we left his life story, Tom had been shot in the head in Iraq, but made it through the next year safely, as had the rest of his unit. A little while before his unit's deployment was to end, Tom's friend and roommate Chuck was killed by a roadside bomb while on a mission he volunteered for. Tom returned home to Buffalo and jumped right back into college, keeping busy, huge class load. Then I graduated from college in May... 2000, whatever it was, four. And uh, actually just saw the pictures and video from that day. Like we had a graduation party for me at my then fiance's mother's house. And I just remember like the whole family was over there. My family, her family, everybody. And I was in the back crying in tears. I didn't cry when I got shot. I didn't cry when Chuck got killed. I was just pushing forward. I was doing the mission, whatever it was. And all of a sudden, I didn't have a mission because now I'm not in the Army. I'm not on active duty. I'm back in the reserves, finished college. Now what? And all that stuff waited for you. It, it was there. It was, wait, it was waiting. The moment I sat down for a second... We had, I mean, commencement, all that. That's a, a stressful, long, whole situation. We get back, we're opening presents. The moment I get a second to breathe, I'm outside in tears because I don't have anything left. I got nothing. I don't have my army. I don't have school to deal with. My relationship is breaking down. All at once. All at once, every bit of fear I had, every moment that I realized I could be dead right now. I can count 
a half dozen times off the top of my head, I should have been dead. Missions that I should not have come back from. And the whole time, I'm like, I'm Superman. I remember thinking, I got shot my first mission in the head. Who's going to stop me? What's it going to take to put me down? I would go out recklessly by myself with one other truck, like drive two hours up to Baghdad with one vehicle, putting other soldiers at risk. Because I'm just going to do this. I remember thinking, if I'm going down, the sergeant major in the sky had better send the angels of death to come get me. Because if I'm... There was one really bad situation where I shouldn't, I should not have come back from. And I remember thinking very clearly, because I'm a big Bon Jovi fan, that'll make sense in a second. We were stopped on this bridge, and it was hundreds of people not letting us pass. It's one truck with six soldiers, hundreds of people. If they wanted to, this could have been Somalia all over again. And all I kept thinking is, if I'm going down, it's in a hail of bullets and a blaze of glory and a John Bon Jovi song is going to be playing behind me and I'm taking everyone out with me. That's what I would think. And then I came back to the States. I'm like, what do I have now? I thought you were going to go with living on a prayer right there. No, that's too happy. Okay. It's too happy. I play living on a prayer with my band twice a month. My God, if I got to play that song one more time. Like, can we play something from the New Jersey album? My God. <laughs> Want to be my baby or something. Something. With college complete, Tom had nothing to keep his mind occupied. He was face to face with his problems, his memory, his guilt, all of it. He could no longer run. So time to deal with all those issues, right? Well, wrong. He just filled up his schedule all over again. I think at one point I was working on the radio doing morning radio, DJing at nightclubs, DJing at strip clubs, DJing at bar mitzvahs, nonstop, seven days a week. Gotta stay busy. This is what I was doing. You gotta block it all out. there There was one stretch where I worked something like 40 days in a row on minimal sleep. I'm talking... I get up at four, be on the radio at five, five until 10. I go right to school. I, I, I'm in class until two or three. I go right back to the radio station. I do a split. I eat dinner. I drive to a nightclub. I'm DJing there until two or three o'clock in the morning, nonstop. That doesn't sound like someone who's taking care of their mental health issues. No, no, no. So what happened with those mental health issues? I crashed. Hard. When was that? Couple, three years, couple, two years after I'd come home from Iraq. And I was, I was like sitting in a, sitting in my girlfriend's house. She was a medical student, dentist. And she lived down the street from the VA hospital in, in my hometown. I'm sitting there and I'm like, I don't feel good. Like my arm starts getting numb and my chest starts getting cramped up. I can't breathe. Keep in mind, I've put on a hundred plus pounds since I came home. All I did was drink and eat and party and drink and eat and party. 
So I'm like 200 something pounds at this point, five foot seven. <laughs> um, I'm sitting in this chair. I'm like, I don't feel good. And she comes to take my blood pressure. And she's like, it was something ridiculous. Some like 180 over 140 or some crazy thing like that. She's like, we need to get you to the hospital right now. So we get to uh, drive down the street, to the VA hospital. She lives like a mile away. And the doctor, the doctor says, when was the last time you relaxed? Like uh, December, 2003, before the war started. I said, when was the last, like at this point, it's 2005, 2006. It's like, what do you, what do you do to relax? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't relax. What are you talking about? I get up, I work, come home, I drink, go to work, drink at work. Like, I don't, I don't relax. What are you talking about? He's like, you got to relax, man. You're having a heart attack. It's like, I'm 26 years old. He's like, you're, I wasn't sleeping. All I was doing was drinking. I was going hard 20 hours out of the day it's like you, you, you do something you got to do something to relax or you're gonna die from a heart attack before you're 30. the idea of relaxing is to let your mind rest but that is not an attractive option for a depressed person because if the mind is at rest all those horrible unwelcome thoughts can come charging in if you relax They'll catch up with you. Tom Tran had no interest in relaxing. I was not a good person. I was not. I was getting into fights. I was drinking, gambling, spending money. Every, everything I could do to feel something other than numb. Because that's what it was. Came home. I was numb. I just didn't feel anything. I didn't love anything. I didn't... I didn't enjoy life. I didn't, I didn't like waking up. I didn't like opening my eyes. I was numb. That's how I felt. Through everything Tom had experienced in his life, he had always loved comedy. He managed to see Eddie Murphy's Raw special at a much younger age than you'd ever want a kid to see it. Tom even tried comedy a bit in college. It didn't seem like a thing he could actually do for real, though. The path from wounded combat veteran in Buffalo to stand-up headliner isn't exactly a well-traveled one. But he was working in radio, and he was in the habit of saying yes to everything in order to keep busy. A guy that worked on the morning show that I, that I worked on owned a comedy club in Buffalo, New York. And he says, uh, hey, I need somebody to host radio station night. You know, they were doing some promotion and it was literally just, hey, I'm Tom from 97 Rock. These are your drink specials. Take care of your waitresses. Here's your first comedian. I did that a couple times and he starts feeding me jokes and people are laughing. And I'm like, this, this feels better than any drinking or any drugs or jumping out of planes or whatever, man. I'm on stage like making people laugh. It's awesome. It's just this thing that just filled my soul for the first time. Like everything else just filled the hole in my life. There was just this bottomless pit of darkness where I was just shoving booze and sex into it. And it was fine as long as I passed out. But then eventually I'd wake up and there was that hole again. 
But comedy, oh, war did this damage to my soul. And the only thing that's fixed that is laughter, comedy. Soon, Tom wasn't just a host, but a performing comedian. He started taking it more and more seriously. All the intensity and dedication was directed at comedy. He got healthier. He moved to L.A., found work in radio, and kept pursuing comedy. The intensity of Tom Tran never lets up. I record every set I ever do. The best advice I ever got from a comedian was like, you record everything. You watch it like game film. Figure out what's good, what's bad, what worked, what didn't. If I have a good set, I'm not going to lie. I sit in my car. I drive back from the comedy club. I listen to the jokes over and over again. And if it's a new joke and it hit, oh, I will rewind that joke over and over again. I've broken iPhones because I've rewound the videos so many times to listen to me telling a joke that came from my head that went to a group of strangers who laughed. Tom is on the rise as a comedian. New opportunities coming up all the time. He's super excited about his career. When it comes to talk therapy to deal with his issues, though, that's been a lot bumpier. I used to talk to counselors and therapists and psychotherapists and, and shrinks and, and counselors. And I would walk in, I would tell them what they wanted to hear, and I would bullshit them just to finish and then get out of the appointment just so they would leave me alone for two months and then come back. Yeah. What do you want to hear? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Blah, 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 blah. This is how I'm feeling. This is blah, blah. Like for me, it was going through the motions because I always felt like they were so overwhelmed with so many soldiers coming back. This is something that comes up a lot in the conversations I've had for this show, not wanting to waste a therapist's time with your mental illness. It's classic depression, like you're not worthy of having a professional do the thing they are there to do. Those mental health professionals are there. They want to help. But for me, I would go and I just give them what they want. Have you had diagnoses from, from the VA or psychiatrists about PTSD, depression, like full blown, yeah, full blown, <laughs> full blown. So what is their opinion of, of the comedy? Like, are they saying this is a treatment? This is a cure? This, what the hell are you doing? Like, no, they're like, that's cool, man. Okay. <laughs> makes you feel good. They're like, that's cool. It's, if it's helping you, because there are so many different people coming back with different situations and different traumas, whether it was a gunshot or IED or whatever. And I feel like I'm just trying to make it easier for them. So I don't have to go in like, I don't, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what to do. I know how to fix this. I go get on stage and I tell some jokes and I know what I have to do the rest of my, like, I got to get up. I got to go to the gym. I got to work out. I got to get that tension out of my life. First thing in the morning, I got to write jokes. I got to get on stage. I got to tell comedy. Like, that's my therapy. Comedy is my therapy. It is the thing that saved my life. Brief note here. This is not to say that everyone should skip therapy appointments and do open mic nights instead. The audience at a comedy show will likely not all have their masters in social work, for instance. 
But Tom says it works for him, and hell, it's all about finding something that works for you. A few years ago, Tom formed the organization GIs of Comedy, a troupe of stand-ups who are all military veterans. They tour around, often to military audiences. We have plenty of entertainers that go overseas. Bruce Willis came over and played with his blues band while I was in Kuwait or Iraq. I was like, there's never been a group of just veterans who are comedians or musicians or whatever who've done this. And there hasn't been that recognizable name in military entertainment since Bob Hope. Bob Hope is, when you think military entertainment, you think Bob Hope. And Bob Hope has been dead for years, and he has stopped doing that since the first Gulf War. It would be inappropriate to take him on tour at this point. It would be. And just, I mean, luggage fees are ridiculous. So I wanted to create something, partly because I wanted to show vets and and people transitioning out of the military like me who who got out and the i came back i was in a dark place man drinking heart attacks boozing womanizing i wanted to show them look you can do this thing whatever this thing is for you whether it's comedy or music go to school be a lawyer be a doctor be a cook whatever any bit of success that i have is so that I can tell other veterans, there's a life afterwards. You were a soldier. You're a veteran now. You're also a fill-in-the-blank. Father, brother, uncle, wife, sister, mother, doctor, cook, whatever. (laughs) It's funny that I sound like this, because my father was an Air Force pilot in Vietnam. He came to Biloxi, Mississippi, 1967, trained to be an Air Force pilot, went back to Vietnam, flew C-141s. And he learned English by watching Star Trek. So my entire life, my father sounded like James D. Kirk. And I was like, why didn't you mimic George Takei? And then my dad goes, oh, but. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media maven. Kate Moose is executive producer. Technical director this time around, Corey Schreppel. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. Hey, it's your donations, no matter the size, that keep this show going strong. So give today at hilariousworld.org. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation on a topic like that can be awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. 
HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. Find us there and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening on Facebook with your fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed over there. It's a good hang. And you can write to us with an electric mail. Email Thwad, T-H-W-O-D, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. On our next episode, you know that thing where you have a bit of an accomplishment in your life and then you feel like you don't actually deserve it and you will soon be exposed for the fraud that you are? Well, it's called imposter syndrome, and it is super common, especially for people with depression. You will hear stories from real live listeners and tips on how real live listeners deal with it. So I've christened my imposter syndrome apocalypse asshat. He's like the seven-headed beast. I've created an embroidery of his image, stabbing him thousands of times in the process. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. 